Today, we are uh, taking on the next week of our Undeniable Sermon Series. And what we've been basically doing for a number of weeks now and what we'll finish on next week is working through the final steps of Jesus' life as he makes his way towards crucifixion, burial, and then ultimately resurrection. And uh, it's, it's this sort of idea where Easter and Christmas present us with these two pretty familiar seasons, where if you've been in church for any amount of time, you kind of know what's coming. You, you know the end of the story, and so there isn't a whole lot of uh, anticipation as the years go. We've been to go, oh, it's Easter again, so let's talk about uh, the Passion, or oh, it's Christmas again, let's talk about the birth. And so one of the things we're uh, pretty intentional to try to do is to take different angles and different perspectives and try to give fresh uh, meaning and fresh perspective to stories that uh, at times can become stale. And so uh, scriptures never stale, and God's Word is alive and active. And so what we want to be faithful to do is look at the story once again this year and maybe take some new eyes to it. And so in order to get us there, I need to tell you a story about something else uh, entirely, not for something completely different, Monty Python would say. So the, let me introduce you to a guy named Hiro Onoda. Hiro Onoda. Uh, on the left is a picture of, of Hiro Onoda in uh, 1945 when he is sent to the Philippines. He is part of the Japanese Imperial Army, and he is sent to uh, go and fight against the Allies there. Pretty quickly after he and his unit arrive, they are overrun and absolutely begin losing uh, their part of the war. At one point, only three of them are left, the commander and two others, and the commander says, literally, run for the hills, which is maybe... Or that phrase, if you've ever wondered why people say that, that's literally what they did. They ran for the hills of the Philippines and they went into the jungles and they began engaging in tactical guerrilla warfare because their, uh, their unit had been completely decimated. Over the weeks and months that followed, those other two that were with him were eventually captured or surrendered, leaving only Hiro Onoda to keep fighting. The thing was, the war ended and he kept fighting. The war was over and yet he was still in the jungle And he continued to fight the war. He continued to shoot upon anybody who would approach him. Over the years, the government of Japan knew he was there and they would try anything they could to get him to come back into the fold. They at one point dropped leaflets over the jungle so he would find these leaflets that explained to him that the war was over. He said, nice trick by the enemy, I'm not coming out. They then decided to take it one step further and they dropped uh, photos of his family and messages from them telling him to please give up and come on out. They want to be reunited. And he said, nice try, no chance. They even sent friends into the jungle in the Philippines. And he said, I'm glad you're here. It was great to visit you, but this could all be a trick. And so I'm not surrendering. In 1974, there was a Japanese adventurer who was out kind of chasing the story, almost like Bigfoot, saying, yeah, did you hear about this guy who's still fighting World War II? And so he was this adventurer and he went and found himself in the Philippines to see if he could locate this mythological creature that's living out in the jungle, still fighting the war. And sure enough, he finds Hiro Onoda there in the jungle. And he says, you know, he walks up and, and Onoda said he only didn't fire upon the man because no one in their right mind would have come up to him dressed this way. You know, fashion had changed probably. And so they begin to talk and the, the Japanese man says, look, the war's been over for a long time. Everybody wants you to come out. And he said, I'll only surrender by the terms that I agreed to, which is if my commanding officer tells me the war is over. At that point, I'll be happy to surrender, but he's never told me that, and I will keep fighting. So he goes back and tells the government this, and they find his commanding officer. He's a bookseller in Japan at this time, so they fly him from Tokyo to the Philippines. They airdrop this guy in a suit down into the jungle to tell Hiro Onoda, who now looks like the guy on the right when he started like the guy on the left, who for 29 years has been surviving and fighting in the jungles of the Philippines to tell him, look, 
we lost, you can surrender now. Hearing it from his commanding officer, he laid down his sword, his rifle, and the dagger that his mother had given to kill himself should he ever be captured by the enemy. He laid it all down, and he surrendered. And I want to consider two sides of the coin of this story. On one hand, it's this incredible, admirable thing that he lived by himself in the jungle for 29 years. What honorable, uh, loyal service. These are the kind of friends we want. The, The thick and thin kind of friends, the deeply loyal, no matter what's going on, I'm still there for you. On the other side of the coin, we look at a sad man who missed out on all of the prime years of his life because he decided to fight a war that was already decided. So as we pick up the story of Jesus' final steps leading to the crucifixion, we get a look at his friends today. We're going to be looking at a portion of Scripture that deals with Judas and then Peter, and we're going to see how their story is a lot like ours, and how this story, if we're not careful, it's a lot like ours as well. Join me in Matthew uh, chapter 26. We're going to put it on the screen so you can read it along with me. The Scripture says this, while he was speaking, Judas, while he, Jesus, was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests to the elders of the people. Now, uh, the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. So going at once, Jesus, going once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward. They seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, who we find out from the other Gospels is Peter, reached for his sword. He drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples deserted him and fled. We begin by looking at the person of Judas in the story. And what we see is the real arrogance of Judas that is sort of a subterranean theme in this part of the, the scripture. Judas was a student of Jesus's for three years. Judas was a disciple. It means he followed Jesus everywhere. Jesus was his rabbi. He taught him everything. They ate together. They journeyed together. They lived life together. It was a, a very a profound relationship between a disciple and the rabbi. And so the whole scene when we're in the garden here, when Judas walks up, is, is really interesting because it it's really starts with a wild insult that you and I miss because it's not our culture. Verse 49, Judas comes up and he says, greetings, rabbi, which to you and I just sounds like greetings, rabbi. But a disciple was never permitted in that culture to greet their teacher. It was a, ter- it was a way of stating an equality with your rabbi. And so if you were to go up to your rabbi and say, greetings, rabbi, what Judas was essentially doing was looking at Jesus in the eyes and going, you're not that special. I'm just as good as you. And it was a slap across the face of Jesus for the student to come to the rabbi and say, greetings, rabbi. Jesus would have known at that moment that this was not somebody here for good purpose. It's a deep insult, almost brutal arrogance on display as Judas walks in and says, you're not that special. I remember in the 90s, the big cultural problem in our country was the Simpsons. Remember those days? Want to go back there? 
We weren't worried about so many things, but the Simpsons, that had to be stopped. So this cartoon family had their issues. Depending on what household you grew up in, the, you grew up in a, a little stricter household, you will remember not being allowed to watch The Simpsons. If you grew up in a little bit more uh, loose household, you remember all of every line from that age because you were making fun of your friends who weren't allowed to watch The Simpsons. But one of the things that, that sticks out to me that I remember when I even think of this scene in Judas and how this applies to The Simpsons, you can't wait to find out, that one of the reasons people really disliked the show is it was really disrespectful to adults. Because Bart would always call his dad, Homer. Bart never called his dad, dad. He always called him Homer. Like in normal family relations, Homer passed the potatoes. And there was just something disrespectful about it that people didn't like. And it was sort of the bigger thing of the whole show was disrespectful to adults or who knows what. If you go back and watch it now, you'd be like, oh gosh, this is what we were upset about. Look at the world today. But, but you would wince. There's a lack of respect if, if a six-year-old came up to me who happened to be my six-year-old said, hey, Kyle, what about that dinner? You would wince, I would wince, and then she would wince. (laughs) Judas's arrogance and pride in this moment as he comes to Jesus and he says, greetings, Rabbi. It's galling. And what happens in in Judas, in this kind of narrative, and what happens in our own life is as, as our pride grows... It grows with our sin. And so what happens is our pride grows to begin to justify our sin. And the sin that started here begins to cycle up to bigger sin and bigger sin. And we begin to self-justify and heap sin on top of sin on top of sin. I grew up a Catholic, Catholic church. We went to church every Sunday. I didn't really catch the moral framework that was being taught, but, but we did have a moral framework in my house. It was the Berenstein Bears. So anybody, did anybody read Berenstein Bears books growing up? Very good, very good family. Works righteousness, they were a good thing. Their theology is a little off, but they, were, they, they taught good lessons. My, my favorite book growing up in the Berenstein Bears uh, whole series was the one about the lie. And if you, if you had this book, you'd never forget it because this, the, the two cubs, there's Papa Bear and Mama Bear, and then there's Brother and Sister Bear. Very clever naming, I, I have to say. And Brother and Sister were kicking a soccer ball in the house, which is very much not okay because it's inside of a tree and who knows what can happen. And so they're kicking the ball back and forth to each other and one of them kicks it too hard and it knocks over Mama's favorite lamp. Oh no. And then the rest of the book is them lying about the bird that came in and knocked over Mama's favorite lamp and it wasn't their fault. And then what color was the bird? And it was purple. Actually, it was soccer ball shaped. And then it, it all spins out of control until the bears have to admit, yes, Mama, we broke your lamp. And what you see in something as simple as a child's story is the same thing you see in Judas's life is the same thing you see in our life, which is the first mistake leads to a justification and a second mistake leads to a justification, a lie, and a third mistake. And all of a sudden we're knee deep in it and we don't know how we got there. Some people in here would, would say you've lost friendships over things that started as almost nothing and then just sort of spiraled into something bigger. And if you went back to the original thing that started a, a, an issue with you and someone else, it was like, oh, well, I thought you were bringing peas with your dinner and you brought green beans. And it, it, but it became this weird, awkward disagreement and all of a sudden it spun into something and now our families don't talk anymore. And those sorts of things are, are reality for us. These things spin out of control. I wish it was always as easy as the Berenstein Bears and the Broken Lamp. We have a, a pastor friend who's now an ex-pastor friend from our uh, previous church who after... 15, 20 years of ministry, decided that uh, he would rather uh, pursue a member of the team he led than be faithful to his family. 
And he walked away from his uh, family. Despite the protests of everyone who knew him and loved him, of everyone he'd, he'd ever counseled, people that he did their marital counseling came back to him and said, you told us this was wrong, now you're doing it. And what he systematically did over the course of months, despite hours of conversations with anyone who loved him, he systematically began to cut all those people out of his life. One decision after another, he would justify his choice. And what happened is he systematically crushed his family as he cut out people who disagreed with what he was doing. What, what he did was create an echo chamber of those who would justify his decision. That there were still people who said, no, you've been through a lot, you deserve this. Or no, hey, I've been there too. Man, you just got to chase what's good for you. And, and he just, you just surround himself with only the people who would agree. And then walked right out of his family's life. Leaving behind two school-age kids and a wife and a ministry and a life. He leaned into the echo chamber that pride creates, which is really normal, actually. That any time we really get a hold of our pride, we can go find an echo chamber. It's easier now than it's ever been to find, uh, using confirmation bias, we find people who will agree with us. This is called the internet. If you use the internet, the internet learns who you are and then begins to feed you stories that you already agree with. And so the things you see on your social media, the things you see when you, when you Google something, it knows what you're looking for already because it knows what you've looked at previously. And so when you look for something, it's going to give it to you. This is why, this is why in 2019, in the age of information, where all information is known, that we have a growing contingent of people who believe that the earth is flat. This is real. There's a documentary about the growing number of people, not not the weirdos who believe this, and if you're in here and you believe the earth is flat, you're not a weirdo. They are. But <laughs> we've seen the earth. Like, like, there's pictures. It's got this curvature. And there are people who actually more than believed this last year and more than believed it 20 years ago believe that the earth is flat and it's all a big conspiracy by somebody. How do they believe this? Because somebody is on the internet and they said, this is not real. It's all flat. And then somebody else gets on the internet and says, yeah, I heard it's all flat. And now there's this whole pocket of people on the internet that's growing in the flat earth community, which tells us two things. One, people are desperate for community. And two, people will believe just about anything to find it. But confirmation bias is everywhere for us. We can find our way into any position and have people agree with us. Anywhere. So you can go to the hot button issues of the day. Do I vaccinate? Do I not? Am I a Republican? Am I a Democrat? Am I paleo or am I vegan? Whatever. And you can find people who will agree with whatever choice you make of anywhere along any decision in life. Do I just eat meat or do I just eat vegetables? Whatever your choice is, there are a million people that are ready to tell you it's the perfect choice. It's confirmation bias. It's an echo chamber and it's fueled by pride. Judas makes this choice. He makes a choice to betray Jesus. And when he goes to the chief priests and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, we can only assume that they confirm his choice, that he's found an echo chamber that says, great idea, we need to get him. If I had a dollar for every time someone came in my office and told me the bad thing they're doing that a Christian friend told them was okay, I'd be buying your lunch today. Over and over and over, someone comes and sits in my office and goes, hey, I have this problem, but here's what I'm doing, and here's what people say, and everybody's giving me a hard time about this, but I have this one Christian friend who said it's cool, so it's cool, right? 
To which we go, well, I don't know, because this disagrees with your Christian friend. So which one are you going to follow? Yeah, but you don't understand. It's a really good friend. And we get into real, like, deep, heavy issues where people are convinced because they have a person or an echo chamber. They read an article online that says by this other person who, oh, it must be okay. Porn, man, everyone does it. No, they don't. Gossip, it doesn't hurt anybody. Yes, it does. And it's not even really gossip. I just have this information about this person, and I need to share it with those people so that they know how to pray for her better. And you're like, that's, that's not what's going on. You're like, no, it is, because I have this friend who told me that if I shared it with her, that she would just know how to pray better. So I shared it with her, and I said, she should probably share it. And now everybody knows this friend's business, and it's, you know, you're calling it gossip, but we're calling it an uninformed prayer train that was not authorized, which six, one half dozen the other. Pride invites us into an echo chamber of self-deception. And in the echo chamber, you can almost believe that you're on the right track. And so a a mature follower of Jesus doesn't say, can't you see how I'm right? A mature follower of Jesus asks their friends, can you help me see where I'm wrong? Instead of can't you see where I'm right, we say, can you help me see where I'm wrong in this? Can you show me my pride here? Can you show me where this is wrong? Can you show me how this is prideful? Can you help me see where pride might have leaked into this whole thing we're chasing right now? I know this to be true because I have a a position as the person who gets to stand here 35, 40 times a year and talk out loud. It's an invitation to pride. Well, if he said it, I guess it's true. I'm sure he did the research somewhere. And so I have to be even more intentional to, to chase people all the time and go, is this prideful? Hey, I have this idea. Is this dumb? Is this prideful? Is this wrong? Is this arrogant? Because I can't see it if it is. And it might be, and I don't give myself credit to think it might not be because I got it in me just like you do. So is this, and people will tell me. I have people I trust that will go, yeah, that actually feels a little weird. That's a little icky. And I'll go, gosh, I'm glad you told me. It didn't to me, but I needed that. Because I could have found the echo chamber of people to say, yeah, great idea. Let's do that. You can almost hear the resignation in Jesus' voice when Judas says, greetings, rabbi, and kisses him. He says, do what you came for, friend. (laughs) Do what you came for, friend. You can almost hear Jesus going with friends like these. Who needs enemies? Jesus is emotionally exhausted, sleepless nights, sweating blood and tear. Judas, who he has led and loved for three years, betrays him. And Jesus says, do what you came for, friend. As many people know, I grew up in South Texas. There is no ice in South Texas. And yet, to my surprise as a young child, I found out that my grandfather played semi-pro ice hockey in Texas. Did you know this? Ice hockey is a thing here. People play ice hockey. I did not know this. And then I was like eight or nine or 10 years old. And my dad said, hey, your great-grandfather played ice hockey. And I was like, does anybody, you know, notice I call it ice hockey because there's other hockeys, but here it's just hockey. So I was like, what do you, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, he's on this barnstorming, you know, like semi-pro. They paid him a little bit and they would get on this bus and they'd go all around Texas to these small towns and they'd play in whatever ice arena they could find against the local side. And the winner got the money and it was this whole thing. And he played for years. It's like, wow, my great grandfather was a semi-pro hockey player. Dad was a college football player. Dad, great-grandfather's playing professional hockey. Like, I'm I was going to make it. I was going to be in the NBA. This was my backup plan. So I said, Dad, tell me a story about 
tell me a story about this hockey thing. Like, this is kind of a cool. Is there like this one big story of glory in our family about, about hockey? And he goes, yeah, actually there is one story that, that's been passed down through the generations now, and I guess it's time for you to get it. So okay, tell me about it. What position did he play? He goes, oh, you're, he, he played goalie. Big pads, big stick, that big giant goalie stick. No mask. We're tough. And I was like, or stupid, but okay. And so he says, we're sitting there, and he, he, they're at this arena in West Texas. My wife is from West Texas. They're great, 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 simple people. They're great people of West Texas. I'm just kidding. And so <laughs> she, that didn't make her happy. So, so we're in, they're in West Texas. Where it's a little rowdy in West Texas. It's a little rowdy tumbleweeds, dust, I don't know, stuff. And so they're playing in West Texas, and the forward from the other team, every time the puck gets cleared out of the zone, the goalie clears the puck out of the zone, every time the forward would skate behind him, behind the net, and just pop him on the head with his stick. That's not very nice. So it goes on throughout the game. Every time the puck gets cleared to the other side, the referee looks the other way, the crowd looks the other way, and he would just skate behind and pop him over and over. Finally, my great-grandfather says, I'm not letting that happen again. We stand up for ourselves. We're brick holders. This is how it gets told to me. And so as the guy skates by, it's like late second period. He says he loads up. He's ready for him. He sees him coming. He's in that goalie crouch that they're in with those giant pads. And he gets his giant stick and he changes his grip ever so slightly because he's not trying to stop a shot now. Now he's trying to kill somebody. And the guy's coming by him around to pop him on the head. And he, he wheels around with the stick and just swipes as hard as he can. Cuts his ear right off. Oops. Taught him a lesson. He hits the ice, blood is everywhere, chairs start flying over the, the railings, everybody's upset, there's a riot begins, the players from my great-grandfather's team are like hustled into the locker room, they have to bar the door with all the furniture they can find, and for 12 hours they're there, until the local police finally clear the scene and escort them out. Oops. This is my history. The funny thing is, it was told to us almost in a heroic light. I hear this story, and this was not a story of great family shame. This is great family pride. We defend ourselves. All right, I was ready. It's almost the same way when we read Peter's story. We read in in verse 51 that Peter flexes its hero self, that Jesus is getting arrested, and this coward scoundrel Judas has turned him in. And Peter's the one who's like, man, I'm not letting it go down like this. And good for Peter for at least defending him. And that's how we kind of read it. We're like, yeah. So Peter chops off the servant's ear, and then Jesus scolds him. Jesus says, come on, didn't you hear anything I said? And what we see is the ignorance of Peter seen in two different ways. We see the arrogance of Judas, but we see ignorance in Peter. The first way is is the sword is an indication that he's missed it, that he just doesn't understand what Jesus was there to do. Jesus says, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Not a statement on violence or war. He's telling Peter, you don't get it. So remember, Jews expected a Messiah to come, a political hero to come and change the world, to rule, to reign. And Jesus has been subverting that at every turn. He's he's already told them, I'm not here to wield the sword, but to take it. And yet Peter just doesn't get it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Paul writes this, he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, talking about Jesus, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. God made the perfect Jesus to become sin. 
Which is to say this, Jesus wasn't sent to defeat sin by conquest, by violence, by takeover, by government. Jesus came to defeat sin by becoming sin and taking it to the cross. So that our sin would die on the cross with Christ. And Peter doesn't get it yet. Maybe we can't blame him because it hasn't happened yet for Peter. He's following this wild, unprecedented king, but he still missed it. Second way we see the ignorance of Peter is the sword tells us that Peter is still working on self-salvation. Peter is still working on saving himself. In our society, in our culture, it's no different. We love good versus evil stories. Any good versus evil story we get in on, we like that. We have Star Wars fans in the room. I heard there's a new Star Wars trailer. People get excited. Star Wars, the dark side, the force, good, evil. I love it. I have not seen a Star Wars movie since 1986, but I'm sure they're good. Comic book movies. There's a new comic book movie every six weeks or so. They're making up new comic book heroes. Comic book heroes are always the, the somehow the light fighting the darkness. They always got bit by an insect or a snake or something, got magic powers. They've stepped in some ooze and now they get to fight against the evil of the world. We love it because it's good versus evil. Sports. Sports is good versus evil. It's like the old Jerry Seinfeld joke. If you love this guy, but you hate that guy, and then if they get traded for each other, now you, you reverse it because I'm actually just cheering for laundry. I love this guy now. He was my enemy, but now I love him. We have to have an enemy. So if you're a Browns fan, you hate the Steelers. Steelers fan, you just pity the Browns. <laughs> romantic comedies. Don't think we're leaving out romantic comedies. There's always the right guy that she should pick, not the guy who's wrong for her. Someone's always there for the wrong reasons. We're desperate for villains. We carry swords everywhere we go looking for villains. We're looking for enemies. We're looking for somebody that we can cheer against. When Buffalo made the NCAA tournament this year, they did so by overcoming our beloved BGSU Falcons. They beat our team, our guys who worked so hard, who were so close. Buffalo made it to the tournament. Ah, Buffalo. So in my house, we had this very stark disagreement. My wife was like, I'm not cheering for them. I'm against Buffalo. And I said, I don't think you understand how this works. One, we kind of know those people. Two, their coach is apparently like an incredible human being with a great family. Three, they're from our conference. And so if Buffalo goes and wins games, it makes us look even better. So we want Buffalo to win the whole thing. And then we can claim second place. And <laughs> Math is a little off, but that's the idea. I'm like, you always want to cheer for the people from your conference. It just makes you look better. And it helps that you know them. You know that they're quality people. Let's cheer for them. No way. They're the enemies. They beat us. They sent our boys home. I don't like them. I'll never cheer for them. I know he's a nice guy, but he's the worst guy to me. He's an enemy. Go whoever's playing Buffalo. And I was like, we need to check in. So we checked in with the Hugers. We sent a little text. I said, who are you guys cheering for? Duh, Buffalo. Who else would we cheer for? And I was like, see? And she goes, okay, well, I'll just be neutral then. She needed an enemy. They beat us. I was like, yeah, but it's, that's not how it works. Hiro Onoda lived 29 years in the Philippines, in the jungle. How? Because he always had an enemy. They said anybody who would approach him, he'd fire. Doesn't matter who you were, you must be an enemy. And if you can keep an enemy long enough, you can defend the same ground for a long time. Even America, we live in a country that has always had an enemy. We exist because we formed ourselves out of the oppressor who became the enemy. 
There's a tea party and all kinds of stuff. And now all of a sudden we're the United States of America because British, they were the enemy. And so let me just walk through the number of enemies we've had. As a young country, we first had an enemy named Britain, and then we had an enemy named France, and then we had the Indians, they were an enemy, and then Mexico, that's how we got Texas, they were our enemy, and then we had an enemy, we were kind of out of enemies for a while because it was all going pretty well, so we had a new enemy called ourselves, that was called the Civil War. Okay, go north, we won. So then Spain became an enemy, and after the Spanish War, then we had Germany and Italy and Japan, and those were kind of over multiple wars. We had all these people that we had to be against, and then that was over, and so then there was the Korean War. Remember this one? No, nobody does. North Korea, we had to fight against those people, because why not? And then the Soviet Union, the big evil empire, literally called the evil empire, we were against the Soviet Union. And that wasn't even a real war because we didn't have a war to fight at the moment. So it was called the Cold War. So even when we don't have a war, we have an enemy. And then we fought North Vietnam and then Iraq and then Afghanistan and Iraq again and ISIS, who was sort of a nation, but not really. But maybe if you listen to the Quran and now is it Russia or China or North Korea, or maybe it's ourselves again. I don't know. And, but we've always had an enemy. Always. You can go back through the history of the United States of America and never find a time where we didn't have some straw man that we're going, those guys are trying to take us down. And a lot of times, look, I'm not saying all these weren't justified opposition. Some of these people were doing bad stuff and good for us for taking them on. But some of them, maybe not. We need an enemy. It is in our DNA to look for an enemy. Stop for a moment and consider the odds that you might have an enemy. A thorn in your side, a persistent aggravation, the type of person that when the phone rings and their name comes on the screen, you sort of roll your eyes a little bit on the inside. Ugh. I'll send it to voicemail. Now, you don't think of them as an enemy, but there are somebody that you're just kind of, ugh. And now here's the harder part. Consider that when you call somebody, there's somebody out there who might just think that of you. Oops. Here's the thing. You know, in horror movies, or... Back in the day, I haven't seen a horror movie in a long time, but they used to always have the big phone call scene where the phone would ring and the killer was on the other line and then they would find out the call's coming from inside the house. That was the big like, aha, and then everybody panicked and everybody freaks out. The call was coming from inside the house. The enemy is inside the house. And you're shouting at the screen, turn around, he's right behind you. That whole thing was happening. When we consider the way that we walk, when we consider the enemies we keep, what we have to be considerate of that the enemy is not just inside the house with us, usually it is us. It was born into us. In the eternal sense, we don't live in a Star Wars type universe where people are born either on the dark side or the light side. We are living in a movie more like Outbreak where everybody is born with the virus. The virus of sin that leads to death. That's all it is. Sin is a disease that leads to death. There is no avoidance of it. Being human means we are carriers of it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, Peter breaks out his lightsaber in the moment and starts chopping off ears just in case. As if he's going to right himself through that action. Peter, hero Onoda, ignorant pride. And Jesus sighs and says, have you learned nothing? You cannot save yourself. You can't fight your way into the light. You can't fight your way into healing. You can only follow me because life is in me. Jesus explains that the only way all of this works out, the only way that life overcomes death is for death to to overcome Jesus. That's the picture of the gospel. The only way that life overcomes death is for death to overcome Jesus. Because Jesus becoming sin, he who had no sin became sin. And then in his death, sin dies with him. And so those of us who are included with him no longer 
feel the sting of death. All of the disciples, then it says, deserted him and fled. Judas betrays him. Peter misunderstands him. And all the rest who have been watching this all unfold turn around and run. And if we look at this story, we see that they are us. That we were once infected by the virus of sin. That we were once long on pride and short on faith. And we imagine in the moment Jesus' resignation and his sadness. Even though it's not the end of the story, this is a spot to do self-reflection. Where do you have pride like Judas? Where am I caught in a loop of self-justification? Where are you finding yourself in an echo chamber of sin where you go, you know what? I've justified it this way and that way and this way and I'm running out of options, but I can make new friends who can make me feel better about it. Where are you caught in the loop of self-justification? Or where do you have pride like Peter? Where are you still trying to save yourself with works? Like maybe I believe this Jesus thing, but I had to prove to him the rest of my life that I was worth it. I'm going to earn it. You ever given a gift to somebody and had them offer to pay you for it? How offensive is that? Imagine giving a gift to to someone you love like on Christmas and you hand them the gift that you've saved for and you you thought about and you did a great job and you got them this perfect thing and they go, this is fantastic. What is it, like 147? Let me get out my checkbook. And they write you a check for it. You'd be like, that is the most offensive thing. I'm giving you a gift. And that's what our post-salvation works righteousness chasing feels like. Jesus says, I've given my life for you. I've given you the ultimate gift. And then we sit there and we work our way back towards salvation. We're like, yeah, but look at all the good stuff I've done. Wasn't I worth it? Like, I did a pretty good job to pay you back, didn't I? He's like, that's not the point. The point was you could never have earned it. And now you need to live in it in a new way, in a free way, because to live trying to earn it after the fact is the same as trying to live earning it before the fact. It's all works. And yes, faith without works is dead. And so I'm not saying don't go fight injustice and don't go help the poor. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying that the intention of our heart can't be that we are going to earn our salvation after the fact. We have to live in our salvation and live out of the overflow of Christ in us, not try to live out of the overflow of self showing Christ we were worth it. It's, it's a little nuanced thing, but it's a dangerous hurdle for Christians. Where are you like Hiro Onoda creating enemies to fuel a war that's already been decided? Jesus says, lay down your sword. You don't have to fight for me because I already fought for you. To find the end of the story, we go back a few days from this story in the garden. In a world where Jesus' disciples would betray him and deny him and run from him in his hour of need, Jesus said this in John chapter 15. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. One verse later, he says, I no longer call you servants, he tells his disciples, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. I call you my friends. I'm giving up my life for you. I'm going to show you the most, imagin- most incredible love imaginable. Unbelievable love. You'll never believe it. What I'm about to do for you because I'm calling you friends now. And so we go into the garden and we see Judas walk in and greetings rabbi and kiss him on the cheek. And then what does Jesus say? Even in his moment of ultimate betrayal, Jesus says, do what you came for, friend. 
Jesus says, remember what I said I was going to do for you. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. I'm laying my life down for you, and here you come to betray me. Do what you came for, friend. The truth and the beauty in this is that Jesus is not laying his life down on behalf of those who might call him Savior. He's not doing it despite the fact that we will betray him and deny him and run from him ourselves. He's doing it because of that. Jesus lays his life down for his friends, for you and for me, not in spite of our sin, but because of it, not in spite of our betrayal, but because of it, not in spite of our denial, but because of it. So the thing you struggle with right now, he doesn't love you despite that, he loves you through that. And he gave his life for that. So the relationship that is broken, the habit that you can't crack, he doesn't love you despite that. He loves you because of that and through that. And in him and his death, it's dead too. And your choice is to live in him. Jesus says, put down the sword of self-salvation. It just leads to more death. Put away the arguments of self-justification. They don't lead to life. Instead, Jesus invites you and me to lay down our lives and pick up the way of Jesus It's a way of walking. It's a way of seeing the world. It's a way of following. He says, lay down your life and pick up the way. Follow me. See that it leads to life. Follow me and see that it leads to beauty and grace and love and hope. Follow me. And people come to Christ in two different ways, I think. People become included in God's great love in two different paths. People find themselves on the right side of salvation in two different manners. One way is people believe and then follow. You say, yeah, I believe this thing. I believe this Jesus is true. There's something in my spirit that testifies to its truth. I believe that and I will follow him with the rest of my life. And Jesus says at the moment of belief, we are given the gift of grace through faith. We are included in him, sealed for eternity. The other way that people find Jesus, and there are stories of that in this room that I know of, people say, I'm going to try this out and follow him and see what comes of it. And so some people believe and then follow, and other people in this room say, I don't know if I totally believe right now, but I'm willing to follow and see what happens. Like you would follow him in real time, you begin to follow this Jesus, and as you see his life play out in your life, as you see his grace and his beauty and his hope and his truth, as you follow Jesus, it leads you to belief. And so my challenge for you is this. If you are a follower of Christ already, let go of the arrogance and the ignorance that leads us to these alternate paths of death. Let go of the pride. Let go of the self-salvation. Let go. And take hold again of the life that Jesus brought you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, my invitation to you is that today, maybe you begin to follow him and see Taste and see the good news of the Lord. Taste and see what life looks like in the dust of the rabbi. Taste and see what it looks like to have a Savior who is willing to give his life for you. Because my hunch is if you follow Jesus long enough, you will not be able to help but believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a miraculous God. Lord, in the way that you have rescued us from ourselves, with that you see our lives and you see our need and you've already made a path for us. Father, we would confess as a people, I would confess personally that there are so many days we struggle with the pride of self-salvation. We attempt to justify to you how great we are and how worthy we are. 
Father, there's so many days when I wonder if I haven't earned back somewhere in my subconscious the thing that you gave me first. Lord, I pray that you would convict us, that truth would become real again, that those of us in a place of self-justifying sin would escape that trap. We would lay down the sin. We would walk out of the echo chamber. Lord, we would find you again. For those of us who find ourselves in the self-salvation world, where we look at our good works and we assume that by doing them we must be earning something, God, you would remind us, Father, you would remind us that you gave everything for us as a gift, that you laid your life down and our response is it's not to do more, but it's to lay our lives down back to you to accept the life you've given us. Father, out of that, I pray not that we would become a people turned inwards and a people resting on our laurels, but God, you would use that and you would fuel us through you, through your son and your righteousness, God, that we would be an active people. Not to build a name for ourselves, but God, to right wrongs and to fix injustice, that we would be people on active patrol, not creating false enemies to sustain a war you've already won, Father, but to be more like you. Create in us a desire to be more like Jesus. Create in us a desire like children, not to pay you back for the gift you've given, but Father, to live a life that shows you how grateful we are. Lord, thank you for this place and this community, a place of high challenge and a place of great community fellowship where we can challenge each other and spur each other on to the easy work of following you, Jesus, but the difficult life of doing it in a world that is opposed to us. Father, I pray that we would live well in that tension. We would please you with these lives that we live in response to your grace and your goodness and your love. Lord, may our lives be nothing short of glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.